In Luke 24, beginning in verse 13, we'll be 13 through 35 this morning. Um, it says in verse 13 through 16, it says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus came up, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Verse 13 says that it was the same day. In other words, it was Resurrection Sunday. It was still the day that he rose from the dead. In previous uh, verses, Luke tells us how some of the women who had been with Jesus since Galilee witnessed Joseph of Arimathea take Jesus' body, well, they might have seen him, it doesn't say, but they took his body down from the cross, and because it was the Sabbath, had to bury him quickly, took him to the garden tomb, which was Joseph's tomb. He was a rich man, and, uh, and he took him across this short distance and put him in there, and we find out that Nicodemus was involved in all this stuff as well, and they put him in there, and the women are watching this from a distance. Most likely they had been at the cross, well, we know that they had been at the cross with the Lord, and they had just stayed there, just looking at Jesus, his body hanging, the blood dripping, his lifeless body hung on the cross, and they stayed there. Then hours later, we see a man come and take him down, and where is he going with him? And they follow him to the garden tomb, and they see him wrap him and put him in there, but they did not know that they had already prepared his body for burial with the spices, and so they were going to go home, prepare the spices that were necessary for their religious uh, ceremony and burial, and they were going to come back, uh, but the problem was is that it was the Sabbath the next day, and so they had to stay, and so they would come back early Sunday morning. They came back early Sunday morning to find out that the tomb was empty, and Luke tells us they found that tomb empty when they arrived, and an angel appeared to them asking, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is risen just as he said, amen, hallelujah. And then they went back and they told the 11 apostles, remember Judas has hung himself, he's died, and he told them what they had seen, uh, they told them what they had seen, but they did not believe them except for Peter and John, possibly they got up and they had a foot race to the tomb. And they went in and, uh, in, in, well, actually, Peter went and looked. And verse 12 in Luke uh, 24 says that Peter went away wondering to himself what had happened. What in the world was going on? Jesus had risen from the grave just as he said on the third day, and it was later on that resurrection day that these two unnamed disciples of Jesus, not the apostles, as the Gospels tell us, uh, well, later on in Luke you find out, as they were walking to Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem, we don't know anything about Emmaus, where it is, verse 14 tells us that they were discussing everything that had transpired. And you can just imagine that these men had gone through some traumatic events. Jesus of Nazareth, the one who they thought would deliver them, uh, deliver the nation of Israel, was himself delivered by the Jews to the Romans and executed. Their hope hung on that cross. They were devastated, as we'll see. And as they are discussing everything, the resurrected Lord Jesus, he appears and he starts walking alongside of them. And it says in verse 16 that they 
we're kept from recognizing him. And this is kind of Jesus' mode of operation as he's, as he's moving forward. He appears, but no one really knows who he is. It happened to Mary Magdalene. It happened to, happened to the disciples at the boat uh, when, they, uh, when Jesus would appear to them in Galilee, and Peter finally recognizes them and jump off. So basically, he is, he's incognito. Something about his glorified state, something that is being withheld, it was deliberate on the part of the Lord. And he kept them from our time from recognizing him. And so Jesus comes alongside these two disciples as they are walking away from Jerusalem towards Emmaus, probably their home, just bewildered on that resurrection Sunday. And Jesus asks them in verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. And so when Jesus asked them this question, they stopped dead in their tracks and their faces are downcast. Again, they were without hope. They were in a pit of despair. They had devoted their lives to following Jesus Christ. They had thought that he was going to do certain things. He ended up not doing those things that they thought. And he, actually the opposite happened. He died on the cross. He was dead. And now we get to hear what they're thinking. Verse 18 and one of them named Cleopas, we don't know anything about him either, asked him, asked this stranger, Jesus, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Are you clueless? We know from historians that probably around three million people converged, up to three million people converged during the feast times on Jerusalem. And it was the talk of everybody of what was going on, and they marveled, they simply marveled that he did not know what was going on. And Jesus answers in verse 13, and what does he say? He says, what things? About Jesus of Nazareth, they reply. Now, if you're taking notes, it's important to jot down that when Jesus is asking questions, he is not lacking information. Just to let you know, God did that with Adam. Where are you, Adam? Was God like, you know, oh, I can't see through the trees? No, he knew exactly what was going on. And this is how God often works with us, doesn't he? We find ourselves in a frustration and, or in despair or even in sin. And unbeknownst to us, God begins to walk alongside of us in those times. And through a process, he begins to expose what is going on in the inner workings of our hearts as we experience something. Quite often, we want to know now what's going on. But it is through a process of pain or, or suffering or despair or whatever it might be that God begins to show us. This is just kind of how He works. If you look back in Genesis, like when uh, it's, you know, you find out that Adam said, and he found no helper that was suitable for him, right? You read that in Genesis 3? How did he find out that there was no suitable helper for him? Because he named all the animals and there were two of them. And he realized, none of those fit me. And so it's through a process that God revealed something about Adam to himself. And that's what Jesus is doing when he's asking questions. He is digging in these people's hearts who are in despair. He's going to bring out why they're despairing. He's going to show them the inner workings of their hearts. Why are you depressed? Why are you hopeless? All these types of things. This is what is happening with these disciples. And Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? What things are happening. And they begin to talk with the Lord. 
the inner workings of their heart come out. And so the Lord in His masterful way gets them to begin to describe Jesus to Jesus. That's what's on their mind. So they begin to describe Jesus to Jesus. Pretty interesting. Verse 19, second part, says, He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So these men began to describe their dash hopes. Many of you have dash hopes this morning. Many of you struggling. You thought something was going to go a certain way, and it didn't. They had dashed hopes that this Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, powerful in word and in deed, was killed. And we really thought he was going to be the one who would redeem Israel. And here we begin to see that their information was incomplete. Just as it had been with the apostles who were following Jesus, they were looking for that physical deliverance, and they ignored the spiritual deliverance. That was their focus. They desired that physical deliverance so much that they were unwilling to recognize what the Scripture said about the spiritual deliverance. They wanted deliverance from Rome. Who wouldn't? Amen? They didn't have a full understanding of what this mighty prophet's purpose was. And what they had just seen, and it's important, they're going off what they see, over the past few days, it caused them to be downcast. It was not what they understood would happen. And they said, and what is more, it's the third day since this took place. It kind of eludes me as I'm looking to that. What is that about? What, what are they saying? Are they kind of anticipating the resurrection? Uh, I don't know. But I think they might be saying, listen, it's the third day and we haven't seen Jesus. I think they are remembering that Jesus might have said he rose from the, the dead. But they have not seen him. And verse 22 goes on, it says, in addition, some of our women have amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. What's the word that keeps on being repeated over and over and over? See. They didn't see him. What did Thomas say? Unless I see, I'm not believing. And this was the problem with the disciples and those who followed Jesus. They had to see it. They had to see it. Any of you like that? Besides me? Show me, Lord, show me. I want to see it. Do it, please. That please is kind of like an afterthought. Oh, yeah, I've got to be reverent. We were amazed, but we were unconvinced. We were amazed, but we were unconvinced. How many of you have been amazed, maybe by something that God has shown you, but you were unconvinced? It really didn't change you. It's amazing when I look at Israel and their Old Testament, how hard-hearted. Anybody look at them and go, man, how hard-hearted, stiff-necked these people are? 
I mean, God just like, He appeared and did stuff. He parted the Red Sea, and then they're like, meh. <laughs> like, what? That's me. That's you sometimes. Oh, we struggle with that, don't we? We want to see it. But even then, it's interesting. And here's the heart of the matter that Jesus is getting to with His disciples. Verse 25, He said to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have what? Spoken. Spoken. That's how God works. That's how He works with us, church. He speaks. How does He speak to us? Well, primarily through the Word. Amen? But He speaks through, sure, sermons online and songs and all this type of stuff that's verified in the Word, obviously. But He speaks. When the promises of God and the reality of life don't match up, what do we do? I don't know about you, but I'm like these guys. I'm downcast. I'm despairing. I'm... I'm I'm having a hard time emotionally. Anybody else? Yeah. That's what makes us Christians. We walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by what He says and not what we see. There's a kingdom that is not made of this world, that is not physical like this. That's our home. I mean, that's what we believe, truly believe. Do we? <laughs> you know? This is the root issue, is that they did not believe the whole testimony of Scripture concerning Jesus. They're operating without a full understanding of what God said about the Messiah. And I feel like we all are. But even though Jesus told them and He taught them, right? He told them and He taught them. And they themselves, they had access to the scrolls, the scriptures, right? All the prophets. They only chose to focus on the ones that met their needs and not necessarily what He said. How many of us come to church to get fed? Sometimes. Anyone else? Me too. But I want to get fed about what I want to get fed about. Anybody else? Okay, get to the part where it's about me. <laughs> Anybody else? Me too. I'm like studying going, okay, well, that's nice. You know, but what about me, Lord? How's this, you know? They had taught them. You know, Jesus had taught them. He told them. And they themselves had access to the scriptures that spoke not only about the physical deliverance that the Messiah would bring, but that he would suffer and die for the sins of the people and rise again on the third day to deliver Israel and whoever would believe from the captivity of sin and of death. But the disciples, like many of us, were slow to believe all that the scriptures said when 
they see the events happening, they became downcast and they became depressed and they became hopeless when it didn't work out the way they had thought it was going to with Jesus on the throne in Jerusalem and them ruling at at His side. That was their plan. It didn't work out because they had selective understanding. They were locked into what they wanted to know and not what God was saying. And that's a danger for all of us, a danger for me. And Jesus at this point, how many of you would be like, oh, they're downcast, they're hard. Let's do some, you know, I'd be your emotional support buddy for a little bit, you know. And how you doing? I'm so hard. Let me pray for you. Let's get you going. What does Jesus do? Now, this is Jesus. This ain't me. Jesus calls them what? He says, you're fools. It's like, jeez, please be more kind. There must be something more important in Jesus' mind. Is this a common phrase that he uses with his disciples? You are foolish and slow to believe. He just like says it over and over, and you have little faith. The problem was is that it's true. And the reason that Jesus doesn't address their feelings is because their feelings are rooted and their emotions are rooted in something deeper, a belief that is not true. That's why they're depressed. That's why they're overwhelmed, because they, they don't have the full information. They didn't read the whole Bible. They didn't see the big picture, the whole deal. They were looking at the circumstances that were right for, before them, and how could they not? I'm not blaming them. I would do the same thing. Anybody else? And they were just going, this is it. This is all it is about. We're done. And Jesus is going, you're foolish and you're slow to believe. It seems insensitive, but it's true, and Jesus is actually going to bring them to joy through this process. Jesus' primary concern with, their, with them is their, is their faith in the Word of God. This is not their depression. It is not their hopelessness. The issue is their lack of faith in God's full plan. That's what was going on with them. And Jesus points out that they were focused on some of the things that the prophets had said, and they were slow to believe all the things that they said. Verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So he says, you're foolish and you're slow to believe all that the gospels had said. Didn't the, doesn't the Bible say that the Messiah would have to suffer? Remember those verses? This really shouldn't take you by surprise, guys. I remember when I was 22, 1998, I remember my health turned, and um, I just had been following the Lord out of the world for under two years, and I remember searching through the Bible and underlying every verse about healing. Anybody else? I was just diagnosed with chronic daily headache, and it just turned into a bunch of other stuff, and there, and after a short time, I became very upset when God did not heal me and was not, and, and he still hasn't. But I was like, God, you say right here that you heal people. Anybody done that? Open your Bible and you go, God, this is what you say, like A plus B equals C, come on, <laughs> you know? You know, I read it, you healed David, you healed people who didn't even ask for it. The guy got lowered down. His friends, like, brought him in, and you, you healed them, you know. I've asked. I've pleaded. I've confessed my sin. 
I've confessed everybody else's sin. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> let's, let's get this thing rolling. Answer, still you haven't done what you've said. You haven't done what you've said. God, you haven't made good on your word. Anybody else have gotten in those situations? But when I came to verses about suffering, I conveniently overlooked them because that was not the plan that I was believing in. I wanted the physical deliverance. Anybody else? Amen. So those are the verses that are going to be in my mind. But I failed to read like John 16, 33. And I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace and in the world you will have tribulation slash suffering. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Promise from Jesus, underline it, you will have suffering. No. I'll have deliverance and money and a car and all those things, whatever that we preach, you know. How about 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10? Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, most gladly, Paul says, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may what? Rest upon me. What? No. Yeah, you're made strength in my weaknesses according to how I want to be weak. See, God isn't, he's, he's made strong when we're not. And I know there's a lot of areas we can go into here, but I'm just saying in general. That's not how we think. We think we've got to be strong to be strong to do something. When did God send Moses back into ministry? When he was 40 and he had it all together and he was ready to go and he was, had the position and all those things, when did he send him back into ministry? When he's 80, after 40 years of doing nothing. It says, and then Moses came to the Lord. The Lord said, hey, Moses, let's go. Let's go. And what, it, what happened? Moses said, I can't. Like, I can't even talk. I can't. I've been talking to sheep for 40 years. Like, you want me to do what? He said, that's exactly, I just want you, and he got, got mad with him because he wouldn't trust him, but it's in our weakness that he's made strong. I, I, I look over those verses, I, I pass them away, or how about Hebrews 12, endure hardship as discipline, God is treating you as his children, for it children are not disciplined by their father. If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us, our earthly fathers, for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in His, what? Holiness. How many of you are like, God, I want to share in your holiness. Discipline me. How many of you are praying that way? Discipline me, God, so that I can be more holy. Bring on whatever you've got to bring on so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Make me weak so that you are strong. Is that counterintuitive to what we hear and what we think? Yeah. It's me too. And he says, God disciplines us for our good. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful, correct. 
Good observation, Apollos or Paul, whoever you are. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of what? Righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What's going on in your life? What are you asking God to get out? Now, obviously, there's sin in our lives, those things God wants to deliver from, but what, what's going on? What's the irritant going on in your life right now? What's the struggle, the pain, the hardship that you've gone through? You know, we look at each other and begin to, begin to oh, well, they've got this problem, this problem. We all got something going on. And as children, we're going to be experiencing suffering. Some of us have physical things going on. Some of you struggling emotionally constantly. Some of you financially have blown it or whatever. You know, I mean, whatever. Have you taken this and not just said, take it away, God, but teach me, Lord? I'm lacking information. How many of you struggle with depression and hopelessness and anxiety and all these things and we, we just run to the medicine cabinet or whatever it might be first off? Lord God, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? And, and I'm wearing glasses, am I not? So I'm not against medicine, right? It's like, okay, I need, a, I need this to help. So that, that's not what I'm teaching, okay? But I am, I am saying... Lord, teach me, show me. Am I only willing to look at the verses I want to look at? Or am I going to look at the whole thing and like Paul say, Lord, if you won't take it away, then go deeper. Break me so deeply that I am holy. Come into my heart and flood me with your Holy Spirit that I would be a changed man, a changed woman that I would be more like Jesus. Do what you got to do. Teach me. I'm going to kick and scream sometimes, God, but teach me. Lead me to the cross. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but later, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness if we're trained by it. What's God training you with right now? I was foolish and I was slow to believe all that God had said. I wanted God to be what I wanted when I wanted it instead of saying, Lord, I will be done. And as a believer, this can lead us to become frustrated with God and even hopeless and have despair. So Jesus walks up and says, you're foolish and you're slow to believe. Gosh, you're not sensitive enough, Lord. Listen, I've got truth for you that's going to undercut all that stuff. I'm going to put something underneath that. I'm going to uproot that so that it doesn't have a hold on your life anymore because you're going to fall back on what I say and not what you see and how you feel. And you're going to preach to yourself in the morning the truth when you wake up and you don't feel like moving anymore. You're going to preach to yourself what Jesus says and not what I say or what's happening. You're going to say, this is what your word says, Lord. I'm going to go by what you say. It might seem like you're in the grave. It might seem like nothing's happened, but I know that what you say is life. And that's what's going to grow and change us as a church. And notice it's Jesus who came to these guys who were bummed out. Jesus walked alongside of them. They didn't even know it. God could be working in your life right now. He is working in your life right now if you're a believer, and you might not even know it.
and how he's doing it. Who knows? And now that Jesus has walked alongside them, he has shown them what is lacking in their faith and understanding concerning Jesus. They didn't have the full picture. Now he's going to fill that void. He's not only going to tell them what's going on, now he's going to show them. Verse 27, let's, let's check this out. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the Scripture concerning what? Himself. Wow. An Old Testament survey that I would give anything to be at. That's the, that's the class I want to take right there. Jesus just saying, check this out. The whole Bible is about me. It's concerning me. How many of you are bored with the Old Testament? Anybody? Just be honest. Like, oh yeah, the who begats and all that stuff. Yeah. Put Jesus in the middle. You know, this is what the Gospel of Luke is all about. It really is. Luke said in the very beginning, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Things that have been fulfilled among us. Fulfilled according to what? To the scriptures, the prophecies, all the things in the Old Testament. Many have seen these things happen in front of their eyes. And they've taken an account to write these things down. That's how we got the scriptures. Just as they were handed down to us by those for whom were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. I'm reading out of Luke 1, verse 1 through 4. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke penned the gospel so that Theophilus, which by the way means love or friend of God, means that so that they would know, he would know, this person would know all the certainty that we would know all the things that had been taught about Jesus. We'd know for certain that it was true and it was according to the Scriptures. And that's what Luke's been doing. He's been going, the Bible says this, Jesus fulfilled this, fulfilled this, fulfilled this, fulfilled this, and that's all he's been doing the whole time. You can trust him. He's a rock. And Jesus began with Moses, which is it's, it's paraphrased. Moses is the first five books of the Testament. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And, and, and he went on through the prophets, all, all the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And he taught them all about those things that concerned him. And if you're confused about the Old Testament, throw Jesus in the middle. Throw Jesus in the middle. And it's going to start to clear things up. And I'm going to make that case real quickly in our remaining time. Real quickly, did you know that there are probably more than 350 fulfilled Old Testament prophecies concerning Jesus Christ? 350 or more? Probably some say 400. I don't know. Like here's a here's a list of a bunch of them, and I, I played a couple copies back there for anybody who's really into that stuff. Genesis 14:18. He'd be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He is our high priest. We read in Hebrews. He's the Lamb of God, Genesis 22, 8. God himself will provide a lamb. Remember that, Abraham. And he became that lamb a thousand years later. Exodus 12, 18, he was a lamb without blemish. Exodus 12, uh, 21 through 27, he is the Passover lamb. And you just go on and on and on about all these scriptures. You read about these things, you go, this is boring. I don't want to know about this law. It's all concerning Christ. It's amazing. And then we have ones that we have 
been over in recent re- weeks, you know, about Abraham and Isaac, you know, and David, Moses, Joseph. You guys know the story of Joseph? One, this is my favorite story. It's my favorite when I read it. It's my favorite story in the Bible. It really is. I just love it. I cry. I just like, I get all emotional. It's pretty fun. <laughs> Drives me all over the place. I mean, just see Jesus all over the place. Joseph was loved by his father, was he not? What happened to him? Joseph's brothers did not believe him and they hated him. Joseph's brothers rejected his right to rule. Joseph's brothers conspired against him. They stripped Joseph of his garments. Joseph was sold for silver. Everything Joseph put to his hand prospered. All things were laid into Joseph's trust. Joseph's own brothers did not even recognize him. Joseph was tempted and did not sin. Joseph was bound. Joseph was condemned with two criminals. One criminal was given life and the other was condemned. Seen that picture on the cross? How can this be? How can this be? How can these things be so accurate with people's lives, even their own lives living in real time, displaying the glory of Christ, telling the story of the Messiah, the one who would come to save them? Joseph was trustworthy and wise. Joseph's brothers bowed their knee to him in Genesis 14. Joseph was 30 years old when he began his ministry. God planned the suffering of Joseph in advance to save many. The things that happened to him that were horrific were so that Israel, so that Egypt and all those in the surrounding nations, whoever would come would be what? Saved from the famine. Joseph married a foreign bride who shared his glory. Joseph was cast into a pit and then later delivered out of it. Joseph was imprisoned based on false charges, and Joseph's brothers later repented with what they did to him. Remember Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, and they shall look on me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn. How, in, how in much in depth do you want to go? Jesus is the milk, and Jesus is the meat, John Calvin said. I love that. You need milk? He's your milk. You want to mine as deep as you want to go in Scripture, you will never exhaust that vein. He will feed your soul. We could go through each of the patriarchs and and do that. The Scriptures testify of Jesus. You know, there are people in stories that clearly show the things in Scripture. I want to show you one that's hidden. This is just fun. I just love it. You, you know, we, how many of you love genealogies? Just love reading. Not, not like ge- Ancestry.com. Get, get that out of your head. In the Bible. <laughs> genealogies. Like, how many of you just love to read? And Adam was lived, and he lived 700 years or 900 years, and then he had a kid, and he died. And then the next person had lived this many years, and he had a kid, and he died. Then their kid, guess what happened? They lived, they had a kid, and they died. But it gets better because then they have another kid, and then they die. And they keep, it just keeps going until you get to Enoch, who's the seventh from Christ. And he didn't. He walked with God, which is really interesting. When you walk with God, you didn't die. So anyways, but you just keep going. And you're like, great, this is wonderful, God. Why did you put all this stuff in here? It's just fascinating. 
Mark, can you throw this, the little slide up there? As you're reading, uh, when I taught through Genesis, we, we had this. If you look at the guys on the left, that's the genealogy of the names in order in, in, in Noah, I'm sorry, in uh, Genesis chapter 5. This is what their names mean on the right. Go ahead and flip the sentence. And this is what their names mean. Go Man has appointed mar- mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down, teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. Those are the names of people, what they mean, and you throw it into a sentence, and this is what you have, the gospel in Genesis. How deep do you want to go? Jesus took them aside and he's taught them, beginning in Genesis all the way in, these are concerning me. Amen? And then, of course, Isaiah 53. Such a clear prophecy about Christ. Flip there real quickly. We're going to just read it, and then we'll move on. These are the more clear ones. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This is all written 750 years before Christ. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned, our own, uh, turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. And he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before his shears and silent, so, did not, uh, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though, uh, <clears throat> and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And, they will, uh, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors, For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Wow. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 28. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. And so they went in to stay with him. And when he was at the table with them, he took what? He took bread and gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. 
And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They recognized Jesus when he what? When he broke the bread and began to give it to him. What does the bread symbolize? His body was what? It was broken. The suffering. That's when, that's the symbol the Lord showed them. Boom. I had to suffer, guys. Jesus would go on. I mean, Jesus went on. Uh, John would go on later on. He would write about Jesus. And he would say that Jesus is the bread of life. Unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part with me. He, that Jesus is our life. His very words are the things that, that sustain us as his children. That bread, that suffering, it gives us life. Not the physical bread, but him. They recognized Jesus when he broke their bread. And Jesus had walked with them. He revealed their own needs to them. We're finishing. He corrected and he taught them and he expounded the scriptures to them. And they just don't want it to stop. When God's speaking to you, you just, you just more, Lord. Because those words were life to them. Jesus' words drove the truth into their heart of sorrow. And they saw the full picture of God's word transform their thinking. And then their emotions followed. Amen? And they didn't want it to end. Yes, it was hard. They were rebuked, but there was life in the correction. And now they were experiencing sweet communion with Jesus. And they asked each other, were our hearts, verse 32, were our hearts not burning within us while we talked, while we talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? That's the relationship that a sheep has with the shepherd. That's the relationship that we have with Jesus. When he speaks, our hearts burn. That's how you know you're born again, so to speak. Not the burning in the bosom, but it's Him. When His Word comes alive in your heart, it's food to your soul. It changes you. You, can't, you want more. You've got to be around Him. Nothing else works. When the Spirit of God speaks to us through the Word of God, there's nothing like it. Our hearts burn. We may be, you know, we were made to hear God speak. Like Jesus said in Matthew 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. John chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. His words are our life and our light and our path. Are you hearing Jesus this morning? Are you despairing? Are you overwhelmed? You got stuff going on? You don't have the whole picture. Jesus is going to walk alongside you if you let him. He's going to open up things. He's going to show you through detours or whatever study we got going on. Just in, the, in your moment of sorrow, whatever it might be, or whatever trials are going on in life, whatever's going on, say, so Jesus, teach me. If you don't want it to go away, then make it do something for your glory. How many of you got something in your head right now? Click, click, click. Go do it. Follow the Lord. Amen. <laughs> and they got up and they returned to once at Jerusalem. And then they found the eleven and the other with them assembled together. And they are saying, it's true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two uh, told them what had happened on their way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Lord God, we ask that 
we would trust in your sovereign work in our hands, in our lives, that we would trust you even when things don't appear, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness, yes, but also that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our minds would be changed as we seek you, as we follow you, as we have these Goliaths in our life that don't seem to go away. Lord, turn those things, even the things that are oppressive, God, into things that would change us and cause us to depend on you, that our hearts would be broken before you, that we'd be filled with your truth. Lord, I know there's many in here who struggle in their minds. I do in my heart, Lord. I pray that this morning you would heal through your truth, through your word, that you would change our thinking about something and that we would no longer be tossed by the winds, but we would stand on the rock. And so church, pray for one another in this area. And may God put the truth in place of that lie or that past, that missing information in your heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.